0: Let's pray. Lord, we do ask um, what we just asked you in that song. Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Father, um, I'm sure everybody here knows and if not, I pray you'd help them to know that I myself have nothing to say, Lord, uh, that will do anybody any bit of good. And so, Lord, we want to hear from your word. Uh, We pray that Um, I might not stand in the way of your word or twist your word or modify it in any way. Lord, um, may what is spoken from this pulpit um, truly be what your word is conveying to us. May you grant each one of us discernment. Um, May your spirit help us to understand what your word is saying to us. And Lord, we pray that uh, even through this brief time in your word this morning um that you would be pleased to use it to build your church to continue to grow us lord in our faith and in our love for you and our devotion to you may you open our eyes lord to things in our lives that um, that we need to repent of that we need to conform more closely to your word Uh, and lord where we're struggling may you by your spirit illumine our eyes to see the help that is available to us in your word. Uh, We just pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, verses 7 through 13. So turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. And I'm going to start reading from verse 1, actually, just so we can get the context into our minds. Paul writes, chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, "'Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, "'we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world "'and that there is no God but one. "'For even if there are so-called gods, "'whether in heaven or on earth, "'as indeed there are many gods and many lords, "'yet for us there is but one God, the Father, "'from whom are all things, and we exist for him, "'and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things,' and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak." For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul speaks here in this passage about our consciences. Our consciences are precious things. Romans chapter 2, 14 through 16 tells us that God has written the work of the law on every human being's heart such that their conscience becomes a witness for or against them. If you have come to Christ, it was due in part to God, enlightening your conscience to the degree that it was smiting you. It was testifying to you that you were a sinner and that you needed to be reconciled to God. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, when each of us came to Christ for our salvation, our conscience was cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 says that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. To have a clear conscience, to have a good conscience is to know that you've been forgiven of your sins and it is to know what is right and it is to know that you are doing what is right by the grace of God that, you, that has set you free from your sin and has set you free to obey God. That's a precious thing. We need to protect our consciences, and we need to protect one another's consciences, because a conscience can be tampered with. And if we're not careful, a conscience can become seared, like its nerve endings are burned off so that it can't feel anything anymore and and therefore can't prick you when you're walking down a wrong path. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. We've seen a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 3 how Paul laid down the principle that bare knowledge puffs up one's self. But love, on the other hand, uses that knowledge to build others up. And then last week in verses 4 through 6, we saw how Paul was affirming what the Corinthians knew to be true. He was saying, yes, you're right about that, but he sought to take them farther in their knowledge. He, He sought to help them to know as they ought to know. That is, he sought to teach them truth in a way that was in accordance with love. And he did that by stating the truth in such a way that began to reveal that that truth was to have a life-transforming impact on them. He said, though there may be many lords and many gods, yet for us we have one God, the Father, and we exist for him. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we exist through him. Knowing that we have one God and that we were made for him, knowing that we have one Lord and we exist and we're saved through him, that should cause us to deny ourselves for the sake of loving that one God and Lord, for the sake of doing whatever he commands us to do, because we exist for him. In verses 7 through 13, which we're looking at this morning, Paul begins to spell out for us how that love for God should manifest itself in love for others, and particularly love for the weaker brother or sister in Christ. In this passage, we're going to learn that a big part of what it means to love one another is to guard one another's consciences and to be willing to deny ourselves for the sake of protecting our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to walk through this passage in three stages. And the first stage is verse 7, where we learn that one's conscience can become defiled. Your conscience can become defiled. Look with me at verse 7. Paul begins by saying, however, not all men have this knowledge. In the context, when Paul says not all men, he seems to be referring to the weak believer, the believer with a weak conscience that he mentions later in this verse. He says that not all of these folks have this knowledge. What knowledge is that? Well we saw that back in verse 4. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Now when Paul says not all men have this knowledge It's kind of hard to put our finger on exactly what Paul means. How can they not have that knowledge if they're a believer? Well, he seems to be saying that there were some believers who had turned away from their pagan gods, from their pagan lords, in order to embrace God the Father and Jesus Christ as the only God and Lord whom they would serve. But in some way, it seems they had not yet come to the full realization that the pagan gods they left behind were not really gods. Now that might seem silly to us, but to someone who was saved out of paganism, it may have taken time for their minds to be washed by the word of God enough to come to that full realization that those entities were not real gods. Old habits die hard. It can take time to fully break free from old world views, especially when that view of the world was the only view you had. Our salvation happens in an instant, the moment we repent and trust in Christ, but sanctification, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that takes time. We need to learn things that we didn't know before. Paul goes on to explain the situation that these weaker believers are in he says but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and again Paul by saying idol he's referring to what the idol was representing we saw that last week when he said the idol is nothing Well, obviously the idol is something it's a block of wood but he's talking about what the idol represented and he's still talking about that here They eat food as if it were sacrificed to this pagan god that the idol represents. And their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you Corinthians, you know enough to be able to eat that idol food without being duped into thinking that the god the idol represents is real, but these weaker brothers and sisters don't have a firm grasp on that knowledge yet. And so if they eat that food, to them it is as if they are participating in an act of worshiping that pagan god. Paul's saying that's what happens when these weaker believers follow your example and sit at the table in these idol temples. Now it's important to remember here that Paul is not telling these Corinthians that it's okay for them to dine in idle temples as long as a weaker believer doesn't see them do it. How do I know that? Because later in chapter 10, Paul will say you cannot partake of the tables of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time. He's going to later tell them to stop doing that kind of behavior. So he's not condoning that here. Instead, he's wanting them to focus on the effect that their behavior is going to have on other brothers and sisters in Christ. So before he tells them why their behavior is wrong for them, he's instead focusing on how their behavior is going to harm other believers. He'll get to why it's wrong for them later, but right now he wants them to focus on how to be loving one another, how to get their eyes off of themselves and look at how their behavior affects their brother or sister in Christ. And he's saying, this is what happens. Their conscience is defiled. What does Paul mean when he says their conscience being weak? What does he mean by a weak conscience? Well, in this context, a weak conscience Conscience is a conscience that is easily confused, led astray, or warped. The commentator David Garland likened that warped conscience to a demagnetized needle in a compass that no longer points north. A compass needle is designed, as you all know, to respond to the Earth's magnetic field by pointing toward the magnetic north pole. But, if you store that compass too close to a strong magnet, that strong magnet may reverse the polarity on that compass needle such that that compass no longer points north anymore. It's not reliable anymore. A believer with a weak conscience is like a compass that can easily become demagnetized by a nearby magnet. It's a believer whose conscience is easily swayed by the false teachings and sinful behaviors of others. They can be easily led astray because their conscience has not yet been fully and habitually oriented in the right direction by the word of God. I want to show you a few places in the scriptures where we see weak consciences being led astray. For example, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. For the work of service to the building up of the body of christ now in verse 11 he's stating these several different offices and what is common to each of these offices they're involved in speaking what to the church the word of god so the word of god is the primary ministry of these various offices used to build up the church verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what is the result of this ministering the word of God to the church to the extent that they're built up by it and their knowledge um, is made mature and their faith uh, becomes a united faith, one with another, We find the result in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So without that ministry of the word of God, without us as believers receiving that and having our minds washed with the word of God, we're easily blown here and there by every strange doctrine that comes down the pike because we don't know this book enough to know that what we're hearing is not true and we just swallow it. And our conscience gets trained to that false teaching. Another scripture is Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 And verse 6, leading up to that verse, Paul is speaking to Timothy of what will happen in the last days, about how difficult times will come, men will be lovers of self, and all of these different sinful characteristics. Verse 4, they will be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. There's another group of people who have a weak conscience. They're led by their impulses, they're easily taken in by these false teachers, Next, let's go to 2 Peter, chapter 2. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 14. I'll back up to verse 10, actually. Halfway through that verse, Peter is speaking of these false teachers calls them daring self-willed they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties verse 11 whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the lord but these 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 false teachers like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. And here's the key verse. Verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Enticing unstable souls. That's another person with a weak conscience hasn't been trained fully by the word of God yet, and so easily is led astray. Verse 17, again speaking of these false teachers, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So again, there's that enticement. And it seems that this enticement is so strong that those who are being enticed are led astray almost to the point of losing salvation. Their conscience is weak, easily led astray. For such a believer who lacks knowledge and who has a weak conscience to go into an idol temple simply because they see a more, quote-unquote, knowledgeable Christian doing that, is to defile their conscience. Their conscience, by seeing a, an older, supposedly more mature believer entering into that temple, they see that and their conscience is demagnetized by the behavior of their brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing that thing. Their conscience is trained to no longer point toward true holiness, but being defiled, it's starting to point toward unholiness because they're being trained by the behavior of those who should be setting a good example for them but are not. And this is why it's so important for each one of us to continually feed our souls upon the Word of God. God's Word is what keeps our consciences pointed toward likeness. Jesus Christ is our true north. The one who saved us, the one that we are journeying toward as we look forward to spending an eternity with him. If we allow ourselves to be more influenced by the world than we are by the word of God, we are demagnetizing our consciences. And as a result, without even knowing it, we may begin traveling away from Jesus rather than Jesus. So we need to be in this book. So that's the first thing. Your conscience can be defiled if we're not careful. The second thing we see in verses 8 through 12 that you can wound a fellow believer's conscience. I can wound somebody's conscience by my behavior and by what I teach. And so can each one of us. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, But food will not commend us to God. This may have been another piece of knowledge that the Corinthians were using to justify their behavior of dining in idle temples. And again, that statement is true as far as it goes. Food will not commend us to God. Food in and of itself does not bring me closer to God and it does not drive me away from God. Then Paul says, We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. It's interesting how Paul phrases that. Because if you read that verse too fast, we, we have Romans 14, which speaks of very similar things rolling through our mind. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 8, which we're usually not so familiar with, we read this verse and we input Romans 14 into that verse. But Paul is saying things a little bit differently here. If we read this verse too fast, it might seem like Paul is supporting the Corinthians' position. And that he's encouraging the weak believer with a weak conscience to not get so hung up over these things. But if that were the case, you would expect Paul to say, We are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do not eat. In other words, eating this food won't hurt me, and abstaining from this food will not make me more holy, so why not go ahead and eat? But that's not what Paul said here. He said, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So rather than addressing the weak believer here, he seems to be addressing the knowledgeable Corinthians, those who believe they were free to dine in idle temples. And in that case, he's saying to them that it's not going to hurt them if they don't exercise that freedom. And it's not going to help them if they do exercise this supposed freedom. A lot of times we think that we, we just can't live without this certain freedom that we think we have. We say, I really want to watch this movie. I really want to drink this beverage. I really want to tell this joke. And how dare anyone get in the way of what I want to do because, after all, I know I'm free to do this. Our lust to enjoy our freedoms, quote-unquote, can cause us to overlook the effect it might have on someone else. We can start to want something so much that we scoff at the idea of having to deny ourselves that thing. But we learn here that actually we'll be just fine. There's so many times, you know, there was a movie I wanted to watch and the Lord convicts me, this is probably not something you should be watching. And when I give it up, you know what? I survived. I was okay. I was better off not partaking of that thing. Your spiritual well-being does not depend on certain activities that you think you are free in Christ to do. Your spiritual well-being instead depends on what Jesus Christ has done for you and on how well you're getting to know him and on how closely you're following him. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You and I will be just fine without that food or that drink or whatever it may be that we really want because our place in the kingdom and our enjoyment of that kingdom doesn't depend on whether or not we get that thing. Therefore, each one of us can afford to deny ourselves for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ. So, food will not commend us to God, it is true. But, says Paul in verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word translated liberty in my version means "right." Or authority. Because of what they knew, these Corinthians, because of what they knew that an idol is nothing and that there's only one God in the world, they thought that they had the right to dine in idol temples. But Paul is here warning them to be very careful that this quote-unquote right of theirs does not trip up believers with a weak conscience. He doesn't want them to become the tripwire that causes the weak believer to fall back into the idolatry that they were rescued from. How might that happen? How might these Corinthians become a tripwire to weaker believers? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10. He gives the scenario for us about how this might play out. He says in verse 10, For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Remember what the believer with a weak conscience is. It's someone whose conscience is easily led astray, easily demagnetized, Paul says that if a believer with a weak conscience sees one of these knowledgeable Corinthians dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience be strengthened, literally built up, to eat things sacrificed to idols? So that weak believer will see you doing something wrong, but because it's you, the knowledgeable one, doing it, that weak believer is led astray to think that it's actually not wrong, to dine in an idol's temple. Therefore, because you've told him by your example that this activity is not wrong, even though it is wrong, you demagnetize his conscience. That is, you build up his conscience to embrace what his conscience should actually be rejecting. That weak believer is led to believe that it's okay to worship pagan gods alongside the one true God. That it's okay to worship pagan lords alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when that weak believer sees you dining in an idol's temple, because he doesn't yet fully understand that there's not a real God behind that temple, he sees you worshiping an idol and he thinks that's okay when it's not okay. That weak believer is led to believe that. That weak believer is led straight into syncretism because of the Corinthians devotion to their rights. That word for strengthen in verse 10 his conscience strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols It's the same word used up in verse 1 where love builds up. Here their sinful example is building them up in a different way. The sad irony is that instead of the Corinthians building someone up in Christ by love, instead they are building someone up in sin by their selfish use of knowledge. And what's the result? Verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Ruined. You can't get stronger language than that. That is spiritual, eternal ruin. That's what's at stake. The implication here is that by their bad example, the Corinthians may unwittingly cause their weaker brother or sister in Christ to turn back to idolatry, which would result in the destruction of their souls. Paul here is doing something very similar and yet slightly different to what the preacher in the book of Hebrews was doing. Hopefully you remember the emphasis of the book of Hebrews, how it was warning the believer not to turn away from following Christ, and the preacher in that letter warned the believers of what would happen if they rejected the faith. Here, Paul is giving a warning as well, And he's giving also the consequences of failing to heed that warning. But, Paul, instead of warning believers against rejecting the faith for themselves, Paul is warning believers instead against becoming the occasion for a weak believer rejecting the faith. Now you say, well, Josh, I thought you said for a believer... There's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that no true believer will ever fail to persevere. And I still believe that. Notice in verse 10, Paul does not say that this has already happened. He says, if this happens, verse 11 is the result of what would happen. He's warning them about the danger in order to prevent such destruction from happening. As we saw in Hebrews, God uses warnings as one means, among many means, to ensure that we do persevere. And this warning is given to us so that we will help one another persevere. It's telling us how to persevere. Not saying that, oh, we might not persevere. It's telling us how. How to persevere. Each one of us has the responsibility to persevere in our faith, but we learn from these verses here that we also have the responsibility to help one another persevere in the faith. It's not every man for himself. It's one for all and all for one. This warning was given by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 17, And verses 1 through 2. He said there that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Our Lord takes this very seriously. We are to watch out for the little ones, the newborn believers, the ones who are weak in conscience and who need to be built up, not forgotten about and ditched to the side and who cares what happens to them in their walk with Christ as long as I get what I want. That's not how the Christian life goes. Paul then, at the end of verse 11, really swings a sledgehammer at the Corinthians' hearts. By how he ends that verse. He says, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Do you see the contrast here between how the Corinthians are disregarding the weaker brother and what Jesus did for that weaker brother? Jesus, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, was deeply grieved to the point of death. He was betrayed by one of his closest companions, and he was abandoned by the other 11 of his closest companions. He was unjustly accused, and his character was slandered by the religious leaders of Israel. Our Lord was beaten, he was spit upon, and he was made fun of. A crown of thorns were hammered onto his head. His back torn to ribbons by scourging. His own people, whom he came to save, took him outside the camp and nailed him to a cross, asking for a murderer to be released instead of their king. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, the instrument of his own execution, nails driven through his hands and his feet as he was crucified and hung up on a cross to be openly mocked by those who walked by. And those standing guard over him were deciding who would get the only possessions he had left in this world, the clothes off his back. And worst of all, he was forsaken by his father in heaven, even though he had perfectly pleased his father every single moment of every single day of his entire life. And he did all of that willingly to save the weaker brother. And these Corinthians had not considered denying themselves a social meal in an idol's temple for that weaker brother. The contrast could not be any starker than that. Verse 12, Paul says, And so, by sinning, against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Every single believer, no matter how strong or how weak, no matter how knowledgeable or how ignorant every single believer is a vital member or body part of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a part of the body of Christ. To sin against a brother or a sister in Christ is to sin against Christ himself. To wound a believer is to wound Jesus himself. Do we understand that we are capable of wounding a fellow believer's conscience. We need to understand that if we are to make sure it doesn't happen. And that brings us to the third point that we see in verse 13. You must protect a believer's conscience. You must protect a believer's conscience. How often do we consider how our actions and our words and our attitudes will affect our spiritual family. Are there certain things in our lives that we consider ourselves free in Christ to do, but that might actually bring spiritual harm to another believer? For example, what will that brother just saved out of a life of drunkenness think when he sees you walking into the bar? to have a good time with your unbelieving friends? Will your behavior be encouraging him to run back to that idol of drunkenness? What will that sister just saved out of slavery to pornography think when she sees you walk into that movie that everyone knows is chock full of sexual immorality? Will she think that because you look at that stuff, It's okay for her to start looking at that stuff again? Or that man who was saved from a life of living for himself, never going to church with his family, never caring the least bit about worshiping God. What will that guy think when he sees you skipping church regularly to play golf on a Sunday afternoon? Will he turn away from worshiping God? to start worshiping himself again because he sees you doing that and because you've been saved longer and because you know more it must be okay for him to do the same thing. Those activities that you and I tend to assume we are free in Christ to do, are we sure that Jesus really has given us the permission in his word to do those things? And even if it turns out that we are free to do certain of these things that we think we're free to do, is it going to build your brother or sister up in Christ, or is it going to build them up in sin instead? What would the love of Christ for that weaker believer have you do for them? In verse 13, Paul tells us what he would do if he knew that the exercise of a right of his would cause someone to stumble. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul here uses hyperbole or exaggerated language to make his point. He's been speaking to these believers about dining in idols' temples, eating meat in idol temples, but here Paul broadens it out to just eating food, eating meat in general. He says, in other words, listen, if I find out that even eating meat would cause a brother or a sister of mine to stumble, then I will deny myself meat for the rest of my life until kingdom come in order to protect that brother or sister." Now that's not really a realistic situation, that someone's soul would be destroyed over him eating meat in general. Clearly, Scripture permits the eating of meat, but Paul is saying that if that legitimate freedom, if that legitimate right, that legitimate authority he has, might result in spiritual harm to someone, then he would be willing to deny himself the eating of meat until the end of the age for their sake. Paul is stressing here that nothing would be too inconvenient for him to abstain from if it meant helping someone persevere in their faith. That's love, a concern for the other rather than for the self. Do you and I have that same conviction? Are we willing to die to ourselves for the sake of another? Are we willing to lay down our rights? We're Americans. We don't like that kind of language. Are we willing to lay down our rights? Lay down our freedoms? Lay down our authority for the sake of a brother or sister's soul? Jesus died for them. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we need to be willing to lay ourselves down for them as well. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Someone may say, well, that seems pretty legalistic. But is it? Was Paul being legalistic in this chapter? Or is this passage instead forcing us to answer the uncomfortable question, who is my Lord? Is it me? Or is it Jesus Christ? Whom do I exist to serve? Myself or God the Father? And if that question makes you uncomfortable, don't try to make yourself feel better by just waving your hand at it and dismissing it by saying, legalism. Face that question and answer it honestly. And if you discover that Jesus is not really your Lord right now, and that you are not living your life for God right now, then you are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And you need to repent, and you need to trust that Jesus alone is worthy to rule you, and that he truly will be enough for you, no matter how much you have to give up for his sake. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field that we should be willing to sell everything in order just to get Him because He's enough. And if you turn to Him in that way, He will forgive you, He will save you, and He will enable you to pick up your cross and start following Him. Let's pray.